Hi, this is Susan Goldsmith from McCarter in English, and you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 59 of IP Fridays. Today we have an interview with Susan Goldsmith about trade secret protection in the US. Then we also have a story about sound marks in China. And I also want to report on the harmonization of design protection in Europe. On the 15th of April 2016, the European Trademark and Design Network, led by the EU IPO, um, has issued um, a memo on the convergence of graphic representations of designs, a common communication among the participating offices. It's a pretty lengthy document of 61 pages and it goes into great detail on the different aspects of design protection and the representation. For example, what are good background colors? Can you use different colors than white? Is white always the optimum? Um, and to my surprise, it's not. What is the meaning of dashed lines? Um, how do you um, uh, mark areas in a design that should not be protected or, not, or are not part of the protection? what kind of shadows are acceptable in the graphic representations, uh, what kind of reflections um, are acceptable, is it acceptable to have uh, one design with different views, where the different views are, some are line drawings and some are photographs and some are renderings, um, what is the best way to depict exploded views, what is the best way to uh, depict sectional views or partial views, so in my opinion, this is a really helpful document for all design practitioners and you can find it uh, on their website at www.tmdn.org 3w.tmdn.org and you go on the top to uh, the menu um, Converging Practices and then you will find that document right away. So uh, Ken, tell us more about sound marks in China. Rolf, there's a new type of trademark registration in China that is music to the ears of many. China has now registered its first sound trademark, and it has been granted to China Radio International. The registration covers the tune identified with China Radio, a government-owned radio station that has been in operation since 1941. Lu Jinqian, the vice director of the State Administration for Industry and Commerce, told reporters that the newly revised trademark law rules clearly that a single sound can be applied as a trademark. For instance, the opening tune of China Radio International has been reviewed and approved as the very first sound trademark. Under the revised trademark law in China, back in 2013, certain sounds can qualify in China for registration. These include musical sounds consisting of a piece of music, or non-musical sounds such as human or animal sounds, 
or a mixture of both sounds. In short, the sound trademark serves the role of identifying the source of a product or service. We can expect to hear about potentially hundreds more registrations of sounds in China as trademarks as over 450 applications have been filed by parties seeking to register iconic sounds as trademarks in China. For IP Fridays, I'm Ken Suzanne. Thank you, Ken, for this update. Um, now, let's jump into the interview with Susan Goldsmith about trade secret protection. I'm very excited to be joined by Susan Goldsmith today. If you don't know who Susan is, uh, Susan is currently serving as an IP IT partner with McCarter and English in New Jersey. And she is handling all matters around trademarks, copyright, e-commerce and licensing. She is the prior chair of the Software Committee of LES in the US and Canada. Thank you for being on the show, Susan. Thank you so much, Ralph. So today we want to talk about trade secret protection. Um, there was a new law just signed in um, in May this year. So just maybe briefly tell us about what this law is about. Yeah, sure. So on May 11th, 2016, President Obama signed into law the Defend Trade Secrets Act, and it is an amendment of the Economic Espionage Act, which covered criminal activities that involved theft of trade secrets. This law now makes it possible to have civil remedies for theft of trade secrets and allows for seizures and penalties and really gives a federal focus to the trade secrets which wasn't present before. Up until May 11th, 2016, we had only state laws governing trade secrets and there was a Uniform Trade Secrets Act which was signed into law in most of the states but there was no federal Act, which enabled people to go directly into federal court. Now there is, and this federal trade secrets law sits on top of all the states' law. It doesn't preempt them. It just sits on top of them, similarly to the way the Lanham Act sits on top of the state trademark laws. So just as you have a federal remedy for counterfeits, and you can do ex parte seizures of counterfeits, now you will also be able to do ex parte seizures of goods and information that's a violation of trade secrets that were stolen, basically. And you still have to show that they're stolen in some way, but this is a civil remedy, so you don't have to get the criminal prosecutors involved. It's been hard to get criminal prosecution of trade secrets unless it was something involved in national defense because frankly the police don't care that somebody stole your recipe but you may care very deeply. Can you briefly talk about the four pillars uh, like um, and what the role of trade secrets is in these four pillars? Yeah, I think this is really an interesting thing because as we've seen um, diminishment of the ability to patent software especially, it's been clear to me that there needed to be something to prop up the rights of especially software, software developers in their algorithms. There's no protection for that under copyright and there's no protection for that under trademark. Obviously it's not a brand. So there needed to be something. The four pillars of IP are traditionally patent, copyright, trademark, and trade secret. They're all quite different. 
the protection in the U.S., at least for patents and copyrights, is directly in the Constitution, uh, and that has been very clear throughout our history. The protection for trademarks and trade secrets, less so, and that all comes under the Commerce Clause. It's protection of commerce and protection of consumers. So the the four pillars, usually when we talk about what's their IP, when we talk about a company, we're usually talking about patents. And I think it's really important to remember that there are three other pillars here. And this one, trade secrets, is now getting propped up and made more important. It's always been important to some degree, as Coca-Cola will certainly tell you, but it's more important now for the software community especially. Susan, can you tell our listeners who might not be familiar with trade secrets, um, because they are maybe patent professionals or trademark professionals or come from Germany where trade secrets are not protected by law, um, tell our listeners like what trade secrets really are? Sure. A trade secret is generally a process, a uh, information about an algorithm. It could be a recipe. It could be a methodology. It could be what we call um, know-how of how to do something, how to make something, um, which is not open to the public. It doesn't matter how it's stored or compiled. It can also be memorized under the new law. And it's something that gives financial, business, scientific, engineering information. It has to be really secret. This is a key item. The very first question that should be asked is, is it actually secret? Because it's not known to others. It can't readily be ascertained by others. It can't be reversed engineered by others, uh, by somebody else who can obtain economic value from that disclosure. Uh, secondly, the owner has to have taken reasonable measures to maintain secrecy, and that's always a big issue. Did you take reasonable measures? And third, there has to be independent economic value derived from that secrecy. So it's relatively easy to give examples in terms of things like algorithms. Many people talk about how they have a proprietary algorithm, but it's also pretty easy to um, lose secrecy by reverse engineering. If someone has practiced in the art, and I think that's the patent term, um, and can figure out what you did pretty easily, then it's not much of a secret and uh, probably will not be given this kind of protection. Right. Can you give our listeners um, like an example that is easy to grasp, let's say? Sure. Um, I wasn't involved in this case, but a couple of years ago, there was a case about uh, Thomas's English muffins. I don't know if you have them in Germany. You probably don't. But they're quite famous in the U.S. for having these nooks and crannies that are involved. Um, and it's a baking technique, which uh, the Thomas's English muffin people only had about seven people who knew the whole technique of how to make these nooks and crannies, a very special texture for this particular muffin. One of their uh, things that they did to keep it secret was to separate the different elements of the process so that only a few people knew all of them. And by knowing only one of them, you couldn't know how to make these particular muffins. So they had a guy who was the head of baking who, in one factory, who took a job with another company, funny, called Bimbo Baking, 
Um, and uh, he was seen to be downloading information from his computer. I, I guess you could picture it as a flash drive or something. And he, they could do an analysis and see that he had taken this information from his own computer while he was still um, employed by the Thomas's baking people. And he took that information and took a job with a competing bakery. And there was a great concern that he would be revealing the secrets. And in fact, the um, employment was rescinded. There was a lot of press about this particular thing. And so it's a good example of something that is a trade secret. They did take protection method me measures. They took strong protection measures by separating the elements and not letting any large group of people know what it was. So that is a good example of uh, trade secrets that's held. So, uh, Susan, um, how would a trade secret be protected? Like, how do I get this protection? You keep it secret. <laughs> that's how you protect it, is you keep it secret. Right. So there is no, uh, I mean, that's obvious, uh, there is no application and no registration procedure or Absolutely anything? Absolutely not. That would <laughs> defeat the purpose. In fact, a lot of people are going to have to decide whether they want to apply for patents over these kinds of things because once you disclose it in an unprotected manner, it's not a secret anymore. And so we find people blowing the trade secrecy aspect by their own actions very often. For We've had people do things like put proprietary and confidential notices on you know, slide presentations and things that were really very revealing, and then posting them on the internet. Um, I saw the other day, um, I was doing a trademark search and went into the trademark records, which are all public, and there's a, a consent agreement between two parties And right within that document that's now posted on the internet for third parties like me to see is a sentence that says, this agreement is confidential and proprietary and should not be disclosed to anyone except the USPTO. So there it is out there on the internet, and that's not a secret anymore. Uh, we have a lot of overmarking of documents. Everything gets marked confidential and proprietary, and when you do that, uh, sometimes, you know, to distribute that on an unprotected basis is blows the trade secret. Um, there's a lot of aspect of this new law which has to be implemented, so um, that's something else. Uh, also, very often people enter into confidentiality agreements and they say that they're going to mark the materials that are confidential and proprietary, and then they don't, and then you have a big dispute about what was actually trade secret. So it's very important that companies identify their secrets, train people not to reveal them, actually not reveal them, and that's how you protect your trade secret is to keep a secret. So then um, how would you lose your right to a trade secret? You lose it by revealing it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> by revealing it in an unprotected manner, you certainly right. re lose it. Um, you know, it's very hard to keep a secret. It, most people can't keep secrets even of the most trivial kind. And so some of these are very important trade secrets to the business and, and they get lost through inadvertence and through, um, through mistake. But once a secret is out, it's out. There's no pulling it back unless it's some violation of this law. This law went into effect on May 11th, 
2016 and took immediate effect. There's been a lot of press about it with regard to how employment agreements have to be modified going forward. And I just want to also point out that it applies to consultants and to um, other parties, not just straightforward employees. And there are there's a notice provision in there that has to go in about that it's okay if you are a whistleblower. So, for example, if you know that it's a trade secret that some product has terrible toxic chemicals in it, it's okay to blow the whistle. And that notice that it's okay has to be within the agreement. There's a whole regime around that, which I won't go into on this podcast, but it's uh, very important that that disclaimer be put into documents. Okay, that's important. Yes. Um, this has been a very interesting interview. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Um, if people want to know more about trade secrets um, and details about the Trade Secret Act and uh, especially want to get in touch with you, how would they do that? The best way to reach me is through email. It's sgoldsmith, G-O-L-D-S-M-I-T-H, at mccarter.com, M-C-C-A-R-T-E-R.com. And I want to thank you very much for having me on the show. Thank you very much for being on the show. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast, or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.